from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. Now I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not doing too terrible. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing fine, thanks. Um, oh, to answer your question from last week, Turner Classic Movies Treasures from Disney Vault does begin at 5 p.m. in the Pacific. Time, there so. you go. So no, yeah. no delay in time. No, no. So yeah, I, when I was setting them to record, I made note. Uh, oh. Well, <laughs> assuming that. Yeah, no, we still don't know if this content is going to make it onto uh, Disney Plus, a lot, especially like the shorts. Some of the movies, of course, we expect to, to make it on there eventually. But uh, if if they don't all make it on there and and Treasures from the Disney Vault continues, then I think it's just set in stone now that I'm going to have to move out to the West Coast so I can watch this stuff at a reasonable hour. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, I see, and then you'll be able to go to Disneyland and the Walt Disney Family Museum and all that. So. Uh, I mean, yeah, but if I end up in like Seattle, then I'm still I'm still a good distance away. But we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, I'll let Disney Plus dictate my life. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we both saw Toy Story four. So yes, we uh, did. Yes, yes, and so how so. How do you think it compares in the in the Toy Story series? Um, I've talked a little bit about it uh, on my Twitter as well as then on uh, on other shows, just very briefly, not really too in depth on anything, but uh, just to kind of reiterate from what I've said before with it, I I thought it was a really fun movie, and I, it was a good movie. It was mm-hmm. I I thought it was a great movie. It was a good Pixar movie, and it was just it was an okay Toy Story movie for me though. Um, mm-hmm. It's there was something, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's it's a hundred percent worth going to see and watch. And there's some hilarious moments. There's moments where I think some people will find themselves getting a little choked up on. Uh, but for me, it just didn't. It didn't feel. I don't. It, it didn't feel necessary, but I don't want to be cliched when I say that. I don't want to sound like someone else because you could argue that Toy Story two and Toy Story three also weren't necessary. But and I, this is where we have talked a little about a little bit, uh, specifically Rhino and I. I felt like the dramatic change in Woody's character in the movie that I'm not going to go into how his character changed, but his character does change. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so different from what he was in the first established movies that to me, it, it felt like that was part of their justification in making it is because someone decided, Oh, we want Woody to, 
we want Woody to change in this way. And on top of that, I feel like someone also decided like, oh, we have an idea for kind of like a, another animated short that happens in the summertime, not Halloween or Christmas. And it's the summertime and it kind of takes place around like a, a carnival in a small town with toys getting lost. And to me, that's where it just kind of, it, it felt like ideas being mashed together. And it, it's, it, it is still better than, Ninety percent of the animated movies you will ever watch out there, but it it just it, it it won't be one that I continually put on anytime I see it. I can I can always watch Toy Story one. I can always watch Toy Story two. Toy Story three eight I I think is a amazing movie, but I do have to be in the mood to watch it. It's not it's it, to me it lacks what it lacks that same energy that the first two had that that make them so uh repeatable for me but Mm -hmm. it's it's still incredible and this one i feel like it'll be i I don't want to degrade it in this way but i feel like it'll be kind of like a, a monsters university for me where i can still enjoy it but i have to like tell myself going into it yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna watch toy story 4 and because it's been a while, but I know I know I'm a, probably a lot harsher on it than you are. But I think I, I, but I do agree with you. You know, on just about all of that, I had a hard time with Woody's um, sort of change or his revelation or realization. I think that maybe as a parent and a grandparent, I could identify with it. You know, what sort of what his journey was in that film, what he was going through. And I'm think I was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, probably the the youngsters that saw Toy Story one way back when are going through that. They're probably at that stage in their life right now. Yeah, yeah. And and I thought, I wonder if the writers were too. <laughs> so I but, that could be a possibility with it. Yeah. And so I so I enjoyed it. I appreciated the journey. It was interesting, as I posted on Twitter, that you realized that the Toy Story films ended up being Woody's journey, and I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And, well, and and it really stuck in on this one, where where you know Woody is definitely kind of the breakout of the first three movies but it mm-hmm. felt it felt like they still included all the characters and Rhino really pointed it out to us today and I didn't I didn't even pick up on it that much but then once he said it it made sense this was like this was like they blatantly ignored a lot of they, the characters that we we did. love and and I missed them I yeah. I picked I did pick up on that and I thought and I know part of it was I kept thinking, okay, when are you going back to the gang? When are you going back to them? And every time I thought they were, it would it was um, that no, they were off on yet another adventure to do something. And I thought, you know, when Bo Peep and all that finally said, okay, we're done here. I felt the same way. I thought, no, you're right. It's time to go back and rejoin the others. <laughs> uh. Yeah. And I listened to a, another podcast that they they did an interview with Annie Potts uh, mm-hmm. about Toy Story 4. And 
apparently, like, when they, they pitched it to her, because, of, of course, she's not in Toy Story 3, they kind of go over that in the beginning of Toy Story 4, uh, what happens with her story. But when they approached her, apparently they they sold it to her by saying, like, well, this is where she's going to go, and the reason we didn't have you in the third movie is because of this. So, to me, it also felt like... And, and, and I know there was... It, it felt like they wanted to make up for some of what they left out of the third movie in terms mm-hmm. of like Bo Peep and that, and someone came up with the idea, well, we can bring her back in this way. And, and I know there was the issues with like Rashida Jones and her writing partner, uh, that was very highly publicized, uh, a couple, you know, year back, two years back. And, and, there's definitely i'm sure there's been a lot of hands on that i don't i don't know it firsthand there i while i i do have i have a friend who who works there i have not pressed on any information in the behind the scenes of the making of it because that's it's not my place to but just from what i see on the screen to me it felt like a lot of hands have touched the story and and maybe maybe it is very close to what one idea of one person had in it and then they decided to go back and add stories that other people had come up with at points in times but mm-hmm. something just feels all over the place about it it feels like a craig williams monologue just scattered <laughs> you never know where it's going to go and and then eventually it gets there and and you might or might not be disappointed yeah, but I, I, but I enjoyed it, and I, I. There are times I just thought it was hilarious, and oh. I was delighted, and yeah, I, you know, I'm, you know, I do feel they've put a period at the end of Toy Story with this one, but I'm not uh, buying it. I'm not either. I because I, I also think there's plenty that they ended with that they could go off and do oh, the end credit scenes basically set up a, a, either a short series mm-hmm. or or uh, another set of um uh animated specials that could yeah. pop out of it. It, it yeah it literally sets the groundwork for where they and, could go with all of that and and they could do two different actually series they easily could them. because mm-hmm. they're uh, they they leave a lot of room open with that. So I I love the new characters. Like I loved um, I loved Duck and Bunny. Oh, this, I thought yes. they they were my they were my favorite. I I mean uh, I I give a lot of love to Forky. Forky was incredible. Uh, I, yeah, I thought Forky was going to get annoying, but he wasn't. Uh, you know, no. And, but um, uh, the Duck and Bunny. There's there's one specific sequence with Duck and Bunny. That then they bring back up at the in the end credits that I, I'm sure I don't know who the writer was that that came up with it, but it is just it's my kind of stupid comedy, and mm-hmm. it, they nailed nailed them. So, but I, you know, that, no complaints for me. I will watch it again. Like I said, it's just not something I see myself being able to say anytime I see it on TV. I won't always sit down and watch it, but I yeah. I'm happy it was made. But it wasn't necessary. And then, are you? Um, do you have your tickets for the Adventures Endgame re-release with the new footage? I, I can't again. 
I I, I saw it twice. <laughs> oh, I only saw it once, but now they're not going to sucker me into seeing it again this way. I planned on seeing it again, but this is so blatant that I'm, yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I don't I don't mind it. I just for me, I saw it once in Dolby and I saw it once in IMAX. So I saw it in the two best ways you can possibly see the movie. Mm-hmm. So any other way of seeing it now is just to actually watch it again. And and I know it's not going to be very long before I'm then watching it at home mm-hmm. once or twice or even more times than that. So and and you know it's we don't live in this life anymore like we do when we're kids. I mean, well this is where I just I date myself completely, but and and you aren't the same way. But you know, my summers growing up, it was like I, I look back to it and like, oh yeah, you know, played outside for hours. But then I watched like four movies a day. And oh wow, <laughs> I, I didn't sleep a lot. I think so, but I did play outside a lot. I was very active in sports and stuff. But I also loved watching movies, and I watched a lot of movies. And that's just not my life anymore. So, I I, I would love to be able to watch Avengers Endgame like six or seven times. But more realistically, I'm going to watch it six or seven times in my life. Period. Not. Mm-hmm. Not in in a very short amount of times, and definitely not three times in theaters. I <laughs> I think I've only seen in recently in the past couple of years. I've only rewatched two movies twice, and that was uh, that was Avengers: um, Infinity War, and then Avengers Endgame. Other than that, I've only seen a movie once in theaters. Okay. Alrighty, well, yep. Well, I'm sure it'll be on the internet. What, um, what they added in? <laughs> it'll okay, be on the well, Blu-ray at least. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. So, okay. Well, this year marks the 60th anniversary of the second opening of Disneyland, as well as the 60th anniversary of the first e-ticket attractions at Disneyland. One of those attractions was the submarine voyage through liquid space that officially opened at a special press preview on the afternoon of Sunday, June 14th, 1959. When Disneyland opened its gates on July 17th, 1955, Walt Disney said that Disneyland would never be completed. As a result, new attractions were added each year. June of 1959 brought to a climax a $7.5 million construction program and gave to Disneyland's three new attractions, the monorail, the Matterhorn bobsleds, and the submarine voyage. This major expansion premiered before a nationwide television audience estimated at 93 million people. Nowadays, we get like 5 million people. Everyone's impressed. Oh, I mean, it's uh, (laughs) when we get 2,000 people watching us live on the on the Walt Disney World show on a Tuesday, (laughs) we're we're patting ourselves on the back. (laughs) Well, the first step which led to Disneyland's submarine voyage was the filming of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, Pre-production planning went on for two years before actual filming was begun. Then, many weeks were spent 
under the ocean in the clear blue waters of the Bahamas. Other filming was carried on at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, and for eight weeks, the 54-man crew worked on an underwater soundstage. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was finally released to the public in December of 1954. And, of course, it's one of our favorite films. Mm-hmm. So. 100%. The second step which led to the construction of Disneyland's submarine voyage was the commissioning by the United States Navy of the world's first atomic-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus. Built at a cost of $55 million, the USS Nautilus is is 320 feet long with a surface displacement of 3,000 tons. A series of three Disneyland television programs were broadcast on ABC, Antarctica Past and Present on September 12, 1957, Operation Deep Freeze on June 5, 1957, and To the South Pole for Science on November 13, 1957. The adventures of the USS Nautilus captured the world's attention with its ability to submerge indefinitely and cruise beneath the polar ice. It should be no surprise that Walt Disney would become fascinated with the the submarine and its technology. Imagineer Bob Gurr recalled the moment when the submarine voyage project began. He said, in 1957, we had laid the track for the Viewliner train out by the Phantom Boat Lagoon. One day, Roger Brogy, Truman Woodworth, and I were walking along the tracks going north on the west side of the lagoon. We were all in a good mood, and Woody had just made some comments to Brogy. Then Woody said, right off the wall, you know, Walt's got everything out here, but one thing he hasn't got, he hasn't got a submarine. Roger and I just looked at him. But I swear that within about two days, a submarine project was launched. I assume that Roger Brogy took that idea straight to Walt, because Roger always had Walt's ear. That is an awesome little story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I, I hope it was that easy, and that's all it took. But, I mean, I guess only the people in the room actually knew. Yeah, yeah, and well, that's how, that's how you know, Bob got the fire engine. <laughs> the, very true, yeah. yeah. So, but it's it, it's so simple, but it, it also does make sense. It's I like it. It's fun. Yeah. Now, the submarine voyage was born of an attraction that didn't make it off the drawing board. Dick Irvine talked to Walt Disney about a glass bottom boat cruise over a picturesque lagoon in Tomorrowland. The guests would see underwater life in a live show, not unlike Florida's famous Cypress Gardens. But Walt decided to do a real submarine um, ride. He said, let's take them down and give them ports to look out of. In a July 23, 1958 memo to Walt Disney, Dick Irvine listed the creative team assigned to the project. Claude Coates and Bill Martin would serve as art directors, with Coates and Bob Sewell working on the show's overall design. Bill Martin would handle the track layout and architectural planning. Roger Brogy and Wethel Rogers were to engineer the animation and effects and work with Ub Iwerks on projections. Lighting was designed by George Feldkamp and Jim Eddy. Civil and structural engineering was overseen by Admiral Joe Fowler, and Bob Gurr would design the submarine vehicles and their drive system. 
Bob immediately began getting all the information he could on submarines, rendering the initial drawings and adopted the look of the USS Nautilus with a conning tower and portholes. Engineering of the submarine was a challenge, since Bob assumed the submarines would actually submerge six feet below the water. Bob thought he could propel the subs using a cable system. After he and Roger Brogy traveled to San Francisco to study its historic cable car system, they quickly abandoned this idea after the operators of that system spent the day explaining all the reasons why they shouldn't use a cable system. So Roger Brogy convinced Walt to simulate the sub's nuclear power with diesel engines. Each submarine was powered by a German-made 40-horsepower diesel engine that generated electrical current to the 10-horsepower motor. The subs had a 34-inch four-blade bronze propeller, and it was Bob's idea to have the two spiral staircases inside the subs to load and unload the boats. A half-shell mock-up of a sub was constructed to test how it would work. Walt suggested digging a test pond to try out some of the gags in the water. So a large hole was dug outside the the machine shop with a large concrete tank and a plate glass window. The hole was large enough to drop the entire mock-up sub into it, and Walt and the Imagineers could look through the portholes at the plate glass window and the water behind it. The Imagineers were able to test the animation mechanics for the fish and other effects. The animation was very simple, with fish floating on wires and circling from rotating turntables. The tank remained at the studio for many years. See, I love that. That is, you know, I know a lot of like Disneyland and other places are built off of models and computer renderings, (laughs) but I love the practicality of that. Like, we want to see what it looks like. Well, we're actually, we're just going to test build a portion Mm -hmm. of it in order to do that. Like, that's... That is the dedication that is is how you get an end product that is so mesmerizing and captivating. And that's it's a brilliant move on, on Walt and the Imagineer's parts by doing this. So it's I, I only wish that I could be there to actually to see what it all looked like when it was all mocked up like that. Yeah, I know. It must have been fun. Yeah. I wish cool. if only everything could just survive throughout all of history then we'd be able to know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Walt was always very curious about how the effects in the test tank were going, and he came around often to check them out. The mock-up was used to determine how guests would board, sit down, and view the attraction scenes. The mock-up had small flip-down seats with a 19-inch pitch, and it was a tight fit. One of the first discoveries made by the Imagineers during these tests was that once the gags were in the water, people immediately put their faces in the round portholes with their noses on the glass. It made no difference how they changed the seating. People still put their heads in the portholes with their shoulders forward. So the Imagineers realized it was necessary to add air conditioning because it was like breathing in a diving helmet. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the the putting your head in the porthole, like for me, that's the only way I can actually see. I am so tall that like 
I my line of sight just doesn't match up with it. So I basically have to hunch over and mm-hmm. put my face right up against it. So if you ever get the chance to ride uh, the the Finding Nemo submarine voyage with me, it's it's pretty ridiculous. I look yeah. I look insane because I'm also bordering on just being way too massive to actually be in there. But um, and, and I don't even want to fathom being in there without air conditioning. I, I know. Jeez. <laughs> I, well, I have to sit the same way, and I just rest my chin right on the um, shelf there of the porthole. Uh, usually, usually I have a camera at least blocking my face mm-hmm. from actually touching the uh, the the glass, the 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 window. But yeah, I'm I'm hunched down over there, like it's uh, a doctor would be appalled at my posture in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roger Brogy's machine shop did all the mechanical works for the submarines. Technical and data advice in building the submarine vehicles was provided by General Dynamics Electric Boat Division. And at the time, they were the only builder of submarines in the United States. Bob Gurr completed the plans and drawings and calculated the hull displacement to be 94,000 pounds in fresh water. After the designs were completed, Joe Fowler arranged for their construction at Todd Shipyards in San Pedro. Now, the subs are actually flat-bottomed. They were constructed with a 3-inch flame-cut steel plate for the chassis. Steel ribs were rolled and sheathed with steel plate. And the fuselage ends were covered with hand-hammered steel sheeting. And each, co- each sub cost about $80,625 to build. That's in 1959 dollars. So. Yeah, I mean, that's where it's like, <laughs> oh, that's the, uh, that's the starting price for, for a Tesla. Mm-hmm. Tesla S. So in today's dollars. So that's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. Early on, the United States Navy expressed an interest in becoming involved in the project, but retired Admiral Joe Fowler recommended against it. His 32 years in the Navy had taught him that Disney would be so hamstrung with orders and regulations, the ride would probably never be completed. As the design and layout of the show progressed, it became clear the submarines would not be able to simply cruise through the existing outdoor lagoon. The mechanics of the animated creatures, designed by Roger Brogy and Bob Gurr, and the requirements for controlled lighting called for a large, separate show building. Landscape designer Bill Evans provided the solution. After a great deal of discussion with the engineers, he convinced them to design the show building to carry a heavy load of topsoil and support the winding roadways of Utopia. We literally landscaped the roof, remembered Evans. We designed it to look like a naturally woodsy scene that actually enhanced the Utopia. I mean, to this day, it still hides it perfectly. Oh, yeah. uh, With how long you know you're you're kind of in the, the actual show building portion of it, it just like it seems like forever and it's really it's not super massive but that's how good of a job they do in like kind of disguising that entire area that you just don't know it uh, just just really brilliant and and it beautifully is fits together like the only mm-hmm. issue when you're you're looking at the submarines kind of facing where the show building would be and stuff the only issue you have is is the people mover track that is still sitting there just dying away otherwise everything else just just fits in so perfectly 
Oh, it does. Yeah. The, when they built the 1967 Tomorrowland, how they layered Tomorrowland with the different levels was very impressive. It's yeah. all those levels, the kinetic energy moving through there. It's it, it's the only bright spot on that land that mm-hmm. still exists to this day, besides Space Mountain. Well, Bob Sewell and Claude Coates worked to create the brilliantly colored scenes along the floor of the Sunlit South Seas Lagoon and the deeper, darker scenes inside the show building. The lagoon would hold 9 million gallons of water and was separate from the motorboat lagoon and other canals and rivers of Disneyland. The lagoon would be kept clear in the state of measured murkiness called for by attraction operations by a vacuum system that pulled up to 1,800 gallons of water per minute through filters and screens. The water was tested three times a day and the park claimed it was pure enough to drink. The choice of colors and paints used on the coral reefs and undersea creatures would prove to be a problem. Each time the attraction was rehabbed, it would look fine for a few months, but then the vibrant colors would begin to go flat. It would be many years to perfect materials that could survive the bleaching effect of ultraviolet light and chlorine. Now, do you think that's kind of... uh it, that's kind of an instance of Disney stepping up and and insisting that it needs to look better because for me, I at least when I, I'm riding like uh, Finding Nemo, I, I'm seeing obviously the the effect in the wear of the water on on paint and such. But I also can bypass it because I'm sitting there realizing that everything in there is constantly being hit by water and it's not mm-hmm. going to look as perfect if, as if it was in a, a covered show building that never sees any light, never has any water damage, nothing like that. So for me, I, I could look past it, but do you think, do you think this was something where Disney was the ones who were just not being stubborn about it, but being particular about it because they had a certain set of expectations yeah, and the colors did get washed out. You know, now they use, I, I think it's a special, you know, they use crushed glass and all kinds of other things that don't fade mm-hmm. the way they used to. But, yeah, back in the day, they they got, um, yeah, they, they turned beige pretty very. <laughs> I'm sure very quickly, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's progress for you. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Sewell and Bob... Um, Washoe developed a method for making um, cast plaster molds from the bodies of specimen fish. This allowed Imagineers to bypass the standard sculpting work and rapidly supply a wide range of fish and other sea life for the lagoon. As the attraction reached completion, 126 animated figures were installed, with another 539 stationary figures. There were more than 15,000 underwater plants put in place, along with 12,000 shells and over 14,000 beads, jewels, and other bits of lost treasure. The tropical lagoon with its mermaid island, lobsters, crabs, and giant sea bass was only 650 feet, less than half of the total 1,365 feet of the attraction, so the rest was within the show building. The first submarine was delivered on April 25, 1959, and the lagoon was filled for the first time on April 26th through the 29th. 
Testing ended on May 2nd, and the rest of the fleet was delivered by May 23rd. Bob Sewell and his divers worked overnight for three months installing the seaweed, fish, clams, mermaids, and other um, props throughout the attraction. The ride simulates a submarine, and and okay, kids, sorry to have to tell you this, it, it's not actually submersible. It's a completely buoyant craft. The operator has no control over anything but the speed. Uh, the illusion of ascending and descending was created by a by a bubble producing means that's in quotations the lack of steerage and manual speed controls would create some interesting issues yeah i I do love the the bubble effect Mm -hmm. um it 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 works well in the daytime but i feel like it's it's at its its peak of greatness at nighttime like you genuinely, because you get in and you realize you're underwater and it's dark. But then, when you don't have that sunlight beating down, then you truly do feel like when you see those bubbles go up, it's like, oh, I went from being dark and underwater to really dark and underwater. And yeah, but then also being illuminated by the creatures and such. So it's it is it, it's that's up there with like to me like Pepper's Ghost in terms of very simple and practical effects that that are still impressive to this day and still really trick your mind. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and the lighting effects at night are uh, just were and are stupendous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now testing of the subs along the underwater track concluded on May second, and the last of the eight new subs was delivered on May twenty third, nineteen fifty nine. Each boat was named after a U.S. Navy nuclear powered submarine. The Nautilus, Seawolf, Skate, Skipjack, Triton, George Washington, Patrick Henry, and Ethan Allen. Wall called it the world's largest peacetime submarine fleet. A lightly themed loading dock was constructed underneath the monorail platform. Now, all, as I mentioned, all of the Disneyland submarines were named after actual U.S. Navy submarines. The first of the Disneyland submarines, the Nautilus, was the namesake for the seashell creature that inspired the submarine in the Jules Verne's novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The Sea Wolf was the second nuclear submarine built and spent two months underwater without surfacing. The Skate crossed the Atlantic both ways without surfacing. Triton, the fourth nuclear submarine, was the first to circumnavigate the globe underwater. The rest were named for important figures in United States history, the Ethan Allen, the Patrick Henry, and the George Washington. Then there was the Skipjack, which was a class of nuclear submarines with a new innovative design. And now everyone loves the Ethan Allen for its its great home goods. Yes, that's right. It's lovely furniture. <laughs> Including its line of overpriced Disney furniture. Yeah. <laughs> Some thought must have been given to pa- to the passenger load affecting how high in the water the sub rode, since the patent stated that different passenger loads would have no effect on the guide rail means because the cage was free to slide up and down on the steering column, which was itself held firmly to the rail by lead weights or springs. The patent further states that the guide means was particularly well adapted to following the guide rail exactly, which was important to create the illusion of the operator steering the vessel extremely close to 
submerged objects without any danger of actually coming in contact with them. Specifically mentioned was that each vehicle, each vessel was provided with a pair of guide means which rolled on the guide rail through the lagoon and building. Well, that isn't exactly how it worked. <laughs> Ed Morgan of Arrow Development, the company that built many of Disneyland's attraction vehicles and guidance systems, told the story that Disneyland was having so much trouble with the guidance system that one day they just shut the attraction down because the boats were coming off the guide rail. There was no provision to keep the guide wheel in contact with the rail except the weight of the sub and compression of the spring. Sometimes a telescopic shaft would bind the wheel and would bind and the wheel would lift off the guide uh, lift off of the guide rail allowing the sub to run into the coral that could knock out windows and let water pour into the hull the ride operators supposedly had special cushions they could use to stop the hole till the repair crew could arrive so so Morgan said that Joe Fowler called Arrow and said, get down here. We're going to have to shut this thing down. We'll call it winter rehab. And by the time it goes back, it has to have your guidance system in it. So Arrow redesigned the guide stem to use two pneumatic tires with the shaft passing through them. By controlling the air pressure in the tires, they could control the compliance and, con- and control the amount of sway. This created a system that would stay on the track and even out any roughness in the ride. So so the submarine voyage attraction opened along with the Matterhorn bobsleds, the Disneyland Alwig monorail, and the motorboat crews for a special press preview on Sunday, June 14, 1959. The motorboat crews had been updated as part of the expansion project. To blend in with the rest of the attractions, the motorboats explored a new waterway with two new lakes and a whitewater rapids section. The motorboats are redesigned and a new two-sided loading dock was built. The preview event began with a 1.30 p.m. dedication parade, which was multinational in its theme. The parade kicked off from Main Street, USA and circled Disneyland's hub. Mickey Mouse, the Disneyland band, and a color guard led costume dignitaries from Japan, Austria, Spain, and other countries in the parade followed by Chief Ward Kimball in the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 and Musketeer Mouse Williams. From the various realms of Disneyland came the Elliott Brothers for Main Street, Wally Bogue as the Great White Hunter, Watusi Warriors, Tarzan, Polynesian Women for Adventureland, Disneyland Indians from 16 actual tribes that worked at the, in the Indian Village, a stagecoach, horse riders, actors from ABC and Disneyland Television Westerns for Frontierland, and a convoy of brand new Utopia Mark V cars with stars from ABC and Disneyland television shows and films as passengers for Tomorrowland. Then following that were floats for each of the park's new e-ticket attractions. And Fantasyland was represented by knights and characters from various Disney animated films and cartoons. The The parade ended with a marching band playing 76 trombones and a surprise appearance by Meredith Wilson. And, you know, for 
Hollywood Studios uh, 30th anniversary. They had a very terrible put-together parade, also featuring all the different areas of Hollywood Studios, but uh, with none of the excitement that you just described in this. And, you know, at the 45th anniversary of the Magic Kingdom, they tried to unfold a banner, and it got stuck halfway down, and they kind <laughs> of just that. called it quits at that. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, apparently with Walt's... Uh, with you know with Walt's uh passing away we we also lost some of the fanfare that went on with mm-hmm. with important stuff because it's not done like it was used to <laughs> yeah and we'll have a link in our show notes to the television special that was broadcast and and it's a little rough what somebody did was they um they basically they 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 videoed uh, the broadcast of the kinescope of of the um, yeah. show, yeah, so, I watched but, it briefly from what you put in our our show uh, script here, and it's it's still very watchable. Oh, it is absolutely. Some parts are very very sharp and clear. Yeah, and it is really good, yes. really worth watching. And and you know they they show you the mountain climbers on the Matterhorn and all kinds of stuff. A very extended dance. Have they done not to go off rails on this one? Not like the the submarines do but uh it, have they done the the climbers in recent years i i don't think i've seen a climber on the matterhorn since maybe 2013 or 2014 now it's it's been a while they haven't done them that's a shame always fun yeah it, they were fun and it was always fun when you saw mickey or goofy or someone up there see that's that's still on my bucket list i'm glad i've seen the climbers but i would love to see mickey doing it <laughs> yeah now at the submarine voyage attraction, Walt Disney assisted Mrs. Mildred Nelson, wife of chief machinist mate Stuart Nelson of the USS Nautilus, with the christening of Walt's Nautilus submarine. Walt had handed her a ribbon-decorated bottle of champagne that was sitting on the top of the submarine, and she smashed it with such vigor against the conning tower that she almost lost her balance, and Walt had to steady her. Um, Walt accompanied her, her three children, Nelson and Kirkpatrick, aboard for the first maiden voyage of the Nautilus. The new attractions officially opened to the public the next day on Monday, June 15th. Sunday's pre-opening events were telecast over the ABC network from 7.30 to 9 p.m. in a special program called Kodak Presents Disneyland 59, hosted by Ark Linkletter, who had hosted just four years earlier the um, opening of Disneyland. Watch for stars of other ABC television shows in the Kodak commercials, like Ed Sullivan and Ozzy and Harriet and their sons. One of the most memorable scenes from the opening day celebration were the live mermaids posing and performing from their small island in the middle of the submarine lagoon. Now, mermaid auditions had been held earlier in the year poolside at the Disneyland Hotel. And these young ladies wore a scaly swimming costume which went past their ankles and ended in a fish's tail. And the tail proved helpful when the mermaids swam past the portholes of the submarines. And these mermaids were often seen sunning themselves or primping and grooming themselves and each other with oversized mirrors and combs. And they remained in the lagoon off and on until 1967. Now, urban legend has it that they swam off because amorous young men would jump into the lagoon and swim out to the mermaid's island. 
In reality, it was the combination of the sun and chlorine's harsh effects on a young woman's skin and hair during their four-hour shifts that ended their reign in the lagoon. <laughs> yeah, I legitimately couldn't imagine having to sit out there and do this. Um, mm-hmm. I like it. It just sounds like a, a special, special, special honor that also sounds like it would be almost worse than anything. It, it, like almost like you're an animal in a zoo, just sitting out there. Yeah. But hey, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was a cushy job, and everyone, everyone was making eyes at you and stuff, and you probably felt like the greatest thing ever. But you were just you're there. <laughs> I also I remember reading some interviews of some of the young ladies that had portrayed the mermaids. They said the costumes were very very uncomfortable and they could not get in and out of them easily. So they a little um, like changing room sort of curtain changing room was off on the dock. And so when their shift was, you know, when they had to change in or out of their tail, um they needed assistance with getting in and out of it. So, of course, there were always um, young male cast members enthusiastically willing to assist them with that. (laughs) Well, the good thing is we don't need those mermaids anymore because now you can meet Ariel at any given time that you want and you can meet a real mermaid through her or or you can always come to good old classic Florida and go to Wikiwachi Springs and uh, and see the mermaid show that they have. So, oh, and those okay. are other mermaids, just just not Disneyland go. mermaids. No, no, those are special. I remember them. That was when I think I told the story in another episode when when I was really little and I was sitting. I think I was sitting on my mother's lap in the um, in, in you know in the sub, walking, looking through the porthole and all that. And one of the little one of the mermaids swam by and and my mother said, "Do you know who that is?" And I said, "Mommy." And much to the merriment of everybody on the submarine. I, I was only a few years old. <laughs> so, anyway. But, um, yes, I remember seeing them when they were out there swimming around. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, the submarine voyage proved to be a hit the day it opened. Long lines persisted daily with families who could not visit Disneyland without riding the submarines. Although the captain's narration was recorded, guests could see the shoes and lower legs of the captain who stood in the conning tower. This cast member actually operated the submarine during its 8-minute, 50-second journey, controlling forward and reverse and the speed of the sub, usually at 1.8 miles per hour. When the sub left the dock, a torrent of air bubbles rapidly passed the portholes, giving the illusion the sub was descending into the depths. The combination of floating figures both near and far contributed to the greater sense of depth. During the cruise, the captain warned that a storm was approaching and we would dive to avoid danger. The storm effect was enhanced as the sub passed through the waterfall that hid the entrance to the show building. When the sub entered the show building, the cast member monitored the movement of the submarine ahead of his and judged the distance by the running light of the sub. He could manually advance the recorded narration as the sub reached each scene. 
Although Admiral Joe Fowler did not want the Navy involved in the submarine voyage project, he welcomed several high-ranking naval official officers to the park for the dedication of the submarine, and off and on in, in the early years of operation of the submarine. As they left the dock, Fowler told them, Now, gentlemen, remember this. I must tell you that because you are scientific and professional Navy people, you will recognize limitations. The ship never does submerge. She remains at the same depth. As the sub approached the show building, the large curtain of bubbles were released near the portholes. And one of the admirals asked, Well, Joe, how deep are we now? (laughs) I'd say periscope depth, (laughs) replied Fowler. The Admiral said in amazement, Gee, this is really great. How do you do it? How do you affect the watertight security? So, see, even even fooled the Navy. <laughs> Which is perfect. <clears throat> mm-hmm. If you can fool the Navy, you can fool anyone. That's right. That's what I said. Even even little even little Moppets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The submarine voyage would undergo a complete rehabilitation about every six years, but the various show elements changed very little. One early change was to a portion of the Graveyard of Lost Ships scene featuring a mother submarine and its satellite pilot sub, which were removed in 1961. Um, Disney artist and Imagineer Mark Davis restaged many of the gags during the 1967 rehab. In 1985, the sub's traditional navy gray livery was changed to pastels of pink, yellow, and blue. This proved to be unpopular with guests. I can't imagine why. And in 1986, they were repainted to the bright yellow common for modern scientific research vessels. In 1987, the exploration subs were renamed to Nautilus, Neptune, Sea Star, Explorer, Seeker, Argonaut, Triton, and Seawolf. At a cost of $2.5 million, the submarine voyage, along with the Matterhorn bobsleds and the monorail, was one of the first e-ticket attractions and remained popular for almost 40 years. On September 7, 1998, the attraction closed because Disneyland executives at the time considered it too costly to operate in relation to its capacity, and a decommissioning ceremony was held. On Tuesday, September 8, 1998, Disneyland cast members were allowed to embark on the final undersea voyage of the submarines from 9 to 11 p.m., The lagoon remained filled with water for seven years, sparkling in the sun, nothing more than a scenic viewpoint. There were rumors over the years about it being reimagined with an Atlantis Lost Empire theme, or even being destroyed as a lagoon at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom had been. However, in 2005, the lagoon was drained, and construction began on the next version of the attraction, Finding Nemo Submarine Voyage, and there were other versions at other Disney parks around the world. But those are stories for future episodes. So, Craig, do you have any special memories of riding any Disney submarine attraction? Yeah, I mean, I I still have my memories of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea mm-hmm. uh, here in, in in Walt Disney World at the Magic Kingdom. But that would, I mean, the last time I would have ridden that, I would have been seven. I want to say, yeah. give or take. So I was still very young. I mean, I I have. 
I hate saying it this way. I know I can remember waiting in line and getting on it and being so excited for it and not disappointed at all and being, you know, thrilled, believing every little bit of it, believing that we are diving down, uh, that we are seeing all these creatures. Like, it it was all so real. I mean, it just... Mm -hmm just perfect and you know i but unfortunately i have more memories of watching our lagoon just sitting there for years and years and years as a a meet and and greet (laughs) yeah and now obviously it's it's completely changed and all that and and while i love new fantasy land it's it, it can never replace it, it it replaced my childhood, and you can never replace the nostalgia that runs deep through your veins. So, um, I'm while I'm bummed out that I don't have that on my coast anymore. I am one of those people who who does fight for Finding Nemo's submarine voyage, and I try to ride it every single time I'm in Disneyland because I I think it's it, while it is not accessible enough for everyone and there's nothing you can really do to change that it's one of those last little special things about disneyland that you just yet don't get that other places and Mm -hmm. i would hate to see it go i think i think time is definitely weighing down on it and it's kind of fighting a losing battle on it but i i I still love the submarines so much and I, i think it's it's a special thing it's it's part of that disney difference i i agree because where else do you ride a submarine and nowhere the and i think the aesthetic of the lagoon at disneyland they pulled it off better than at the magic kingdom and i love Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea the magic kingdom i loved it 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 was the nautilus and it was it was you know it was the film yeah you know basically i I wouldn't want to see the nautilus mm -hmm. i wouldn't want to see that in your Disneyland no, Park. It just it would wouldn't either. fit the like the yellow subs. Now those are those look so good, mm-hmm. and everyone yeah. wants that picture where you have a monorail, the <laughs> you, where you have a monorail, a submarine, and then you can slightly see some of the Autopia cars in the mm-hmm. very far background, and then also have the Matterhorn in it as well. Too, you get all those. You have you have the best picture right. in the world. And then, but you know the way ours is sort of nestled in there and sort of like a corner and you you know you walk down from the Matterhorn and go around it I just think that is so beautifully done it looks almost natural the way they yeah. did that yeah. with the rock work and then the, the the foliage you know that's above the show building and all that with Utopia and um, it's just gorgeous and yeah that 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 was a must-do attraction when i was a boy whenever we went there and even now you know i try to make time for it when i can and i didn't realize it wasn't submersible till i was an adult i think i might have been in college and we were there and one of the on one of the subs the window was cracked on the conning tower and then it dawned on me wait a minute this can't go underwater because the windows cracked <laughs> on the conning yeah. tower. <laughs> and I was so deflated. I was so disappointed. I wanted that illusion just to lasso, even though I've ruined it for everybody who's listening. But um, I, I just thought, dang. But still, it's still an, an amazing attraction. Right. You know, I'm not sold on Nemo. But if it saves the submarines, I'm thrilled. Yeah. And, you know, there's rumors floating around that, you know, it may go. But um, 
I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Because I, I just don't want that corner of the park to become a concrete jungle. You know, exactly. I would rather if they're no longer happy with the Nemo concept. I would rather let's maybe let's take a look back at nostalgia, mm-hmm. and you know, let's. I know it's completely anti Bob Chapek, but let's not look at what you can shove down people's throats and sell. Maybe let's remember that Disneyland is an iconic park, and there it, it's more about nostalgia than anything else and and you can still follow in Walt's footsteps and say that the park's not a museum and needs to be constantly changed and you can change up that attraction but also look back towards the past and and represent the past in a way i'm not saying go like straight 20,000 leagues under the sea but there's got to be something that can be retrofitted in the space that still keeps the submarines and keeps it alive and and reinvigorates new new energy in there and you know if it's it still does have a future for unless uh, we find out that one of the subs is submersible because it takes on water and then topples over and completely sinks but that would be a bad day all around if that ever were to happen yeah that would be but that's unlikely yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they'll just put one of those cushions up on the window. <laughs> <laughs> That'll fix everything. That's right. Why didn't I think of a cushion? <laughs> well, well, we hope you enjoyed this journey around the Seven Seas Lagoon of Disneyland here, and, and on on the original attraction, the history of the original Disneyland submarine attraction. So now we are going to explore the depths of Craig's Disney history knowledge with our This Week in Disney History quiz. And since we were talking about a classic Disneyland attraction in this week's episode, I'm continuing the Disney theme park attraction theme in this week's Disney History quiz. So, Craig, are you all set? I'm, I'm ready enough. Okay, well, here we go. And like I said, this is all about Disney theme parks this week. Okay. So on June 30th, 2011, it was reported that Walt, the Walt Disney Pictures was developing another film based on one of its theme park rides. Walt Disney Pictures had hired Jason Dean Hall to write the script based on this classic attraction. What is its name? Um, back in 2011, I think I, because I, I mean, the first thing I would have jumped with would have been, uh, the remake of Haunted Mansion with Guillermo del Toro, but I think that would have been earlier. And, uh, it's obviously Guillermo del Toro who was trying to make it happen on, the person you said um i'm just not sure then the timeline i remember uh they tried to go after the first iteration of a jungle cruise movie back when i think it was supposed to star tom hanks and and tim allen and then they also were trying to get a matterhorn movie off of it so i'm gonna only i'm gonna go with the matterhorn because that would also then tie into our anniversaries. And I know you like doing that kind of stuff. You're right, I do. And it is. <laughs> it was called the Matterhorn 
based on the Matterhorn bobsleds attraction Disneyland, which, yes, is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. The storyline will be about five young mountain climbers scaling the Matterhorn who have an unfortunate encounter with a Yeti. Perhaps the writer had that unfortunate encounter since we have yet to see that film. I don't <laughs> see us ever seeing it. but I don't either. Not unless there's an Avenger involved or something oh, like that. It, well, keep our fingers <laughs> crossed there. Yeah. Okay, July 1st. What pavilion officially debuted at Epcot Center on July 1st, 1988? 88, that would have been... Um... That would have been uh, Norway in 88. That's right. That's right. And it was dedicated by Crown Prince Harold, who, of course, is the ruler of Norway. It opened to guests since May. The 58,000-square-foot Norway pavilion is designed to look like a Norwegian village. I had a freak out there. I was like, oh, my gosh, is it Norway or is it Morocco? Which one? (laughs) Okay, July 2nd. Although it has been running since June 5th, Walt Disney World formally dedicated an Omnimover attraction on July 2nd, 1972. It will be the last Omnimover attraction Disney will build for over 10 years. What is the name of this attraction? Ooh, um, I'm actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure enough to take a guess. Well, it's in the Magic Kingdom. If that helps. Um, trying to think back to what would have been there. Um, Haunted Mansion would have been there. Uh, no Omnimovers in Fantasyland. Um, uh, then if you had wings in Tomorrowland, maybe That's if you had correct. wings. That's correct. There you go. It's it's formally unveiled during a dedication ceremony in Tomorrowland. Sponsored by Eastern Airlines at this time, the official airline at the Disney Resort. The attraction features such travel destinations as Mexico, Bermuda, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, and New Orleans. I thought that was open in 71, though, for some reason. Not that it matters, but... So, anyway. So, okay. I don't know. I'd have to double check. So, <laughs> okay. July 3rd. The first Disneyland attraction to open outside of the park is dedicated on July 3rd, 1966. What is the name of the attraction and where is it located? <clears throat> um, I, we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. I, so I know it's Midget Autopia. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm blanking on where though. I thought it went to like two places, and neither one's neither one is like slapping me in the face here. But I'm I'm confident in Midget Autopia. You're right. Midget Autopia opened for the younger residents of Marceline, Missouri, following a dedication ceremony. The de- the dedication plaque reads. Relocated from the Magic Kingdom of Disneyland is a gift to the children of this community from Marceline's favorite sons, Walt and Roy Disney. Accepted in appreciation, July 1966, Mayor C.A. Young. 
Sadly, it's no longer there. <laughs> but so. I, so regardless of all the trivia that I remember one day in my life, I feel like we, we bring up Midget Autopia so much that that will never fall from my mind. Yeah, really. July 4th, Independence Day. What was lowered into its permanent location at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom on July 4th, 1989? Um, I'm not sure. So I thought you were going to ask, like, what is the greatest show you could watch on July 4th? No, because it's not the Muppets. (laughs) It it absolutely is. But... uh, that's 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 another question for next year. We'll that save would it be for hall of, show. That would be Hall of Presidents. No, no. I mean, agree to disagree. Uh, I, I honestly, I don't have an answer for you. I'm, I'm, I don't it, know. But we're, you're in the right area. It is Liberty Square. That still doesn't help me. Okay, a replica of the Liberty Bell is hoisted and lowered into its permanent spot inside Liberty Square at the Magic Kingdom. I would have thought that that was there since the park opened. Yeah, no. Yeah. Huh. Well, there goes my whole life. <laughs> okay, uh, July 5th. The Disney Finance Department opens a new account labeled Music and Lyrics for Pepsi-Cola Exhibit on July 5th, 1963. What is this in reference to? I'm assuming that it had something to do. If it's '63, it had something to do leading up with um, with with Small World, since that's who sponsored that exhibit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It was discussions about music for the Pepsi Cola Pavilion for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. It had revolved around the idea of children from many nations singing their respective national anthems. Walt Disney had suggested the Sherman Brothers write one simple tune that can be sung by all the children. The tune had to be simple and catchy, but also had to have enough variety so as not to become redundant over the course of the ride. And of course, the Sherman Brothers will end up composing It's a Small World After All. Well, and speaking of stuff that's not redundant over the course of its entirety, it's <laughs> great moments in history with the Muppets. It's always uh, perfect every single time you watch it. Yeah, if I had a loaded musket. <laughs> <sighs> so bitter. So, so bitter. I know. I know. So. Okay, July 6th. Which Disney theme park closed Captain EO, a 3D 70mm sci-fi fantasy musical movie attraction starring Michael Jackson on July 6th, 1994? After running for nearly eight years, this was the first park to debut the film and the first to close it. Well, I mean, I had a solid, uh, pretty easy choice there uh, going into it, or as, at least for me, 50-50 choice, and you made it very easy. Um it's, that'd be Epcot. That's correct. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's it. You did really well this week. Yeah, it's you know we spend most of our time talking about attractions. Who would have thunk that I'd, I'd do so well at, at knowing at least a little bit of this? <laughs> oh, I know, but you know it's it's hard to hang on to those dates. In, yeah, in one's head. Oh, it's uh, I, I mean I just to peek behind the curtain on this. I literally guess 
a good amount of these, but I try to make myself sound confident. So mm-hmm. that way, at least, uh, that at least it, 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 I sound like I know what I'm doing. So and most of the time, yeah. it works out. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you, you you make logical <laughs> guesses. That so too, that's good. It, it's, mm-hmm. uh, thank goodness for standardized testing, teaching <laughs> you. If you don't know the answers, just fake it. <laughs> so, well, good job with that. Right. Well, I enjoyed talking about one of my favorite attractions at Disneyland, Submarine Voyage. Of course, during the course of the summer or the year, we will talk about some of the other attractions coming up for anniversaries. And keep in mind, I also talked about these in my 60 Years of Disneyland series that started out on our old um, Disneyland podcast. So, um, so you know, for, for more information on this and more about Disneyland. Go and check that series out. For this episode, some of the references I used, uh, there were a few books and magazines. Um, Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas. The Disneyland Story, the unofficial guide to the evolution of Walt's dream by Sam Genoway. Disneyland, the inside story by Randy Bright. Disneyland, the nickel tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford. The E-Ticket Magazine series, which is now available from the Walt Disney Family Museum gift shop. If you would like to see videos of just the Submarine Voyage dedication or the full Kodak Presents Disneyland 59 television special, um, Craig will put links to those in our show notes for you. Mm -hmm. And I found those very helpful for this episode. A couple of websites. um, Mouse Planet had a couple of good articles about the submarine voyage written by our good friend Jim Corcus. And also Arrow Development. They have a very good site that talks about the history of all the theme park attractions they worked on during the during that in that company's um, history. So Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me throughout the week on the different uh, different podcasts that we do, the Walt Disney World Edition, Disneyland Edition, Universal Edition, Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, and Connecting with Walt, and Random Others, and uh, then you can always connect with me uh, more quickly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Check out the Connecting with Walt page with the banner there. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>